This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to A Deeper Look here on Federal News Network. Each episode, we focus on a single federal agency to better understand its mission, its impact on the public, and the people who work here. Now your host, Joe Paiva. Good morning. We are here today with Nitin Narajan, the Deputy Director of Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency. Nitin, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Joe. It's great to be here with you. Hey, to get us started, Nitin, can you just tell us a little bit about what CISA is and what it does and where it sits within the larger government scheme of things? Sure. So CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, is the newest component within the Department of Homeland Security. And our focus and and mission is really looking at the resilience of the nation's critical infrastructure across 16 critical infrastructure sectors for both cyber and physical resilience uh, across the nation. And it really is a great partnerships-based organization that works very closely with our partners in the federal government, with our partners in state, local, tribal, territorial governments, as well as partners in the private sector throughout the nation. And it really is those partnerships that allow us to be successful in executing what's a very complex and challenging mission. And so you sit, uh, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you sit within the Department of Homeland Security, which is you know one of the largest federal law enforcement agencies, one of the largest law enforcement agencies in the world, right? But but CISA itself is not a law law enforcement agency. Is that correct? Correct. We are not. So I think the the beauty of the organization is we're not a law enforcement agency, we're not the military, we're not the intelligence community, but we work very closely with all three of those partners. So that really allows us to take our partnerships into a new level as, as we're able to truly focus on ways that we can be collaborative together and then allows us to go and engage with those other three important parts uh, of the government in a way that allows us to maximize our relationships. Well, so then for all the people out there who are not living in this little bubble of the beltway, I'm going to ask you the question I ask everyone, right? This is taxpayer shark tank. Explain to people on Main Street wherever – why they should continue to fund CISA with their tax dollars. I'd say the the largest piece of what we focus on are things that most Americans take for granted or don't really think about in their day-to-day. So if we relate this to you waking up in the morning, you wake up in the morning, you turn your alarm off on your phone, that's the IT communication sector and keeping that vital so your phone is working. You get up, you flip the light switch on as as you're stumbling through your bedroom, that's the energy sector. And we're working on protecting the energy grid from physical and cyber attacks going to the bathroom, it's time to brush your teeth, you open that water faucet, and working with EPA in the water sector to ensure that we're protecting water treatment plants and wastewater plants from cyber and, and physical attacks. You get dressed, you get in your car, you're going to work and making sure that the nation's transportation infrastructure, subways, rail, airlines, are functioning and effective. You show up at work, you're in a commercial building, we work with those commercial buildings to protect them from a physical security and a cybersecurity nexus. So things that often we will wake up in the first hour to 90 minutes of your day that you're engaging with that you don't think about. And that's really CISA's mission is to worry about those things that you're not focused on to help protect you in your day-to-day lives of every American across the country. So let's pull that back a little bit and, and, and help me help me and help our listeners understand how that really works out. So in the United States, 90% of our infrastructure, critical infrastructure, maybe more, maybe 90 plus percent is not owned or operated or directed by the U.S. government, right? And so your counterpart over at the Chinese, uh, what do they call them, the Cybersecurity Administration or whatever it is, right? The, the CAC, 
you know, they can just tell people to do things <laughs> and, and, you know, that's it. It's, it's over. It's done, right? You don't have that same capacity, right? Just think of like, I'm thinking of like pipelines, right? Half a million miles of pipelines, right? 400 different pipelines, God knows how many companies, 48 states and territories regulating them, plus you, plus commerce, or I mean, transportation. And how does that play out? Like, how do you, how do you operate in that environment? Like, you know, I, I think people would be kind of interested because it's not an easy task, is it? It's not. And that's why I truly see CESA as a partnerships-related agency because we don't own the infrastructure. We can't direct action to be done. We don't fund – we can't fund every action that needs to be done across the nation. It truly is that partnership with state, local, tribal, territorial partners in the private sector to do so. So what we really look at are things like information sharing. How do we ensure that organizations truly understand the risks and the vulnerabilities that they're facing? How do we ensure that they understand the threats that we're seeing globally from adversaries, whether nation-state actors, you know, in addition to China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, but also looking at cyber terrorist organizations, cyber criminal organizations, as we look at physical threats and potential impacts domestically as well. How do we make sure that they understand what we're seeing on the global landscape? How do we help provide advice and guidance that can help drive their local decision-making? How do we help provide best practices? How do we train? We do a lot of training on things like active shooter preparedness. You know, how do we help protect a workforce you know, day-to-day? So really looking at those things that we can offer to scale and offer those tools that can help bolster that local investment and that local efforts on resilience within their individual companies. Because you're right, we don't own it. We can't direct it to happen. But what we have found is that through this partnership model, through working with industry, we're able to really move the dime. Interesting. So you have six major lines of business. Is that right? And I think the two biggest are kind of the one focused on the government and the one focused on kind of the critical infrastructure, the non-government stuff. Do you want to talk to those a little bit just so people out there can understand kind of what, you know, I guess it's the cybersecurity division, which is the government stuff and the infrastructure security division. Do you want to talk a little bit about those and kind of explain them in more detail for folks? Sure. So when we look at how CISA is set up, we have have an internal government role and an external role. So internally, we're responsible for what they call the federal civilian executive branch. And so that is the entire federal government, uh, with the exception of the military and the intelligence community within the executive branch. So we are responsible for helping those departments and agencies protect their networks against cyber attacks. So that alone is a, is a rather large undertaking when you think about the scope and scale of these 100-plus federal departments and agencies that we're responsible for. Separate and apart from that, CISA works with 16 critical infrastructure sectors, looking at healthcare and public health, water, wastewater, energy, transportation, and IT communications and others to really help them protect their network systems, capabilities, and critical functions. So the way we're set up is we have a cybersecurity division that helps bring in, you know, the nation's top cyber experts to tackle both kind of this internal federal government mission along with an external mission. We have an infrastructure security division that focuses on physical security matters, and they kind of work together. But really where a lot of this comes together is we have an integrated operations division. And what this group does is these are individuals in communities around the nation. So we have 600-plus people in communities around the country that are cybersecurity experts, physical security experts, emergency communications individuals, people focused on exercises, on public communications, who are embedded in communities that can engage locally with state, local, tribal, territorial governments, with NGOs, with places of worship, with private sector companies and critical infrastructure owners and operators. 
and they bring kind of the the services that are developed by these DC based offices into communities across the nation so that these tools and resources and training and exercises can be implemented locally even though they're developed predominantly here inside the Beltway. And how many communities did you say that was? We have folks in every state in the country. So we have 600 plus people spread out throughout the country that are focused on purely engaging um, at the local level. CISA at large, we're a 3,000 person organization. So when you start to think about our scope and scale of mission, uh, I like to think we're small, but we're mighty in what we're able to do with 3,000 people. No, and that, well, it's interesting to me because obviously, you know, the last part of the show, we're going to talk about jobs and, and employment opportunities, right? And what I'm hearing is there are jobs literally all over the country, you know, working for CISA, right? Definitely. And, and we've really looked at maximizing efforts like remote work. I mean, what we really want to do is tap into talent across the nation. We want to tap into talent in the communities where they exist. Not everybody wants to move into the Beltway. Not everybody wants to live in the 10 cities where the regional offices are located. Right? We have talent across the nation, and we want to bring that talent into our organization. We want our organization to represent you know, the demographics of the country. It also allows us to do a lot of hiring when you look at specialty programs like hiring military spouses, individuals that may be moving around the country you know, every few years. If we have remote work opportunities, it doesn't matter where they're located. Right? They have that opportunity where we can benefit from their expertise for a longer duration than just two to three years. And so we really want to tap into a workforce truly across the nation. And that's both for programs that are locally focused in the regions, but we also have a lot of people spread out throughout the country that support programs in D.C., but it's work that could be done anywhere in the country, given you know what we've seen coming out of COVID is a very hybrid, capable environment. So that's a good place. We're going to take a break soon. But before we do, I guess that gets me to, you know, you talked about getting up out of bed. The alarm clock goes off. The electricity is working, right? The lights go on. The, the, the plumbing works. You can get water. I guess along those lines, right? Like I know 30% of our water comes from like little local municipal, locally owned water plants that – certainly don't have the same type of cybersecurity expertise that CISA does, right? I, I would go so far as to say probably have no cybersecurity expertise, if any at all, you know, just very little. And so put this in real terms, right? Like for real people out there all over the country, right? 30% of them are getting their water from this little water company that is an absolute target for people like El Quds or any one of the bears. And, you know, they don't have the ability to fight them alone, Right. So, so that'd be, I think, a great example. Can you tell us, like, just how that works out? Like, how do, how does, how do the people getting water in in one of those areas around the country? How do they directly benefit from CISA? How do the people within CISA get to help them on a daily basis? Sure. So, we have a, a formal structure that's been in place for over a decade that brings in what we, we call government coordinating councils and sector coordinating councils, and these are entities made up of the private sector and government that work together to protect each of the 16 critical infrastructure sectors. So the EPA is designated as what we call a sector risk management agency. They are responsible for leading the efforts with the water sector. And we work very closely with them and their private sector councils and their government councils to bring in cybersecurity and physical security expertise to these forums, to share best practices, to share tools and resources, to share services, frankly, where we have things like our, our cyber hygiene scanning and our vulnerability scanning that we can offer at scale to critical infrastructure owners and operators around the country and getting them to enroll in these free services that we can offer these sectors. And working through those groups, through the actual owners and operators in these groups, working through state environmental commissioners, working with associations that represent water utilities across the country, we're able to actually 
penetrate you know a lot of these smaller water treatment plants around the country that we may not be reaching day in and day out with our staff. Locally, our regional teams work closely with EPA regional teams as well to provide that kind of on-the-ground subject matter expertise. So we've had uh, pilot programs where we've worked closely with state environmental commissions to assess water treatment plants in their states to say, what are the potential vulnerabilities? And then states have utilized funding through other resources to help invest in addressing those gaps. We have other assessments that we've done that are longer, more in-depth uh, assessments that have resulted in the investment by utilities and millions of dollars in addressing issues that we have identified through our various processes. The water sector is actually one of our priority sectors this year. So we were actually doing a lot of directed work with EPA and those sectors, specifically for the reason you mentioned, that there were tens of thousands of water utilities around the country. And how do we work closely, especially with those smaller utilities that arguably are target-rich and resource-poor, right? Even in cases where they want to invest, they don't have the ability to invest. So how do we get them to enroll in our free services? How do we make sure that we're reaching them with information? And that's something we do very hand-in-hand with our colleagues at the EPA, and we do that here in the Beltway, but we also do it throughout the nation. So that's, that, that to me is like really interesting. I mean, because I, I just, to me, we're back to that taxpayer question, right? So if I'm in a rural community in Northern California with a small utility, or if I'm in Texas with a big utility, I'm, I'm getting a direct financial gain mm-hmm. from having funded CISA because of the, the benefits of, they now have that security without paying for it, essentially. I mean, they have the expertise without paying for it. They still have to pay for their own security, right? Definitely. And I think, you know, that's really where I, I offer that, you know, CISA is a small but mighty organization. And and we offer a lot of services at scale, and especially when you look at our, our cybersecurity services, where we're able to enroll local jurisdictions into our services for free. One of the things we did a couple of years ago is we took over uh, from GSA what they call the .gov domain. So when you look at a website and you see it's your local town, your city, your state, and it says .gov at the end. We actually own that .gov. And one of the things that we actually did was we removed the fees of entry. So when we took this over from GSA, we made it free so that local cities, towns across the nation can transition to this .gov. And in addition to having that on the website, it also provides within itself inherent securities. So it provides a certain level of security and capability that we then provide on that .gov network. So it allows really small communities that may not have the funding to create you know, large cybersecurity infrastructure to transition to this and get these services organically as part of that enrollment. Well, hey, this is a great place to stop just for a short break, and then we'll come back and start talking some workforce issue. For all of our listeners, this is Joe Paiva with Nitin Antarajan, the Deputy Director for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency. And we'll be back in just a few minutes. Thanks. And we're back with Nitin Natarajan, the Deputy Director for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, part of DHS. Hey, so Nitin, when we left, we had a pretty good overview of what CISA did. I know we're going to go to workforce, but there was one thing I forgot to ask you about that I think people should know about, right? And that is the, the, the emergency comms group, right? Like most people don't even know what GETS is, much less how much they rely on it on a daily basis. Um, 
Can you kind of talk to that a little bit, like, you know, GETS and WPS and TSP and why they're important to, like, people all over America when when they need it the most? So as we look at uh, another part of CISA's mission, when we look at our emergency communications mission, really is a program that works with public safety answering points, or commonly known as 911 centers, statewide interoperability coordinators uh, in every state across the country. And these are the individuals in state government that are helping first responders across the country make sure that their radios can talk to one another and that they're able to communicate during a, during an emergency or a time of crisis. When in that community, frankly, the ability to communicate truly is a life and death type of situation. Our emergency communication teams are also responsible for what we call emergency support function two. And that's the uh, bureaucratized version of, of coordinating communications during a crisis, during a natural disaster, just as we did, saw recently uh, the terrible typhoon in Guam, but as we see hurricanes, flooding, wildfires, those types of events. They also run our priority telecommunication services opportunities, which includes, as you mentioned, the government emergency telecommunication system, GETS, the wireless priority system, WPS, and the telecommunication service priority, TSP. And those programs really allow first responders, critical infrastructure owner operators, to have priority permission on those telecommunication systems, on those cellular phones, to operate during a time of crisis. So we can ensure as we're looking at the response to these types of disasters or the recovery from these types of disasters, that we're able to get things like energy and telecommunications and healthcare and all of these critical things that the communities are depending on back online. You know, and GETS is something that we invest a lot of time into. It's something that has a very, very high success rate, 99 plus percent. And the beauty of GETS is it's available free to local communities, to first responders, to private sector, critical sector owners and operators throughout the nation. And so these are services that there's a lot of information on our website and how to enroll and, and, and how to join that team and get those capabilities and services locally. Um, and it's relatively easy to register. And we really encourage those individuals that need these priority telecommunication services to enroll. April was Emergency Communications Month. It's one of uh, CISA's uh, three top months out of the year. We celebrate Emergency Communications Month in April. Uh, we celebrate Cybersecurity Awareness Month in October. And we celebrate Infrastructure Security Month in November. So we just came out of a lot of engagement with our emergency communications colleagues around the country, specifically on the programs that you mentioned. Well, that's fantastic. And, 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 and I didn't really want to delay as much, but I thought that was important to hit, right? Because I remember I was the CTO of a healthcare organization. And, you know, these things are like really important when there's bad weather and people need doctors, right? I mean, just at the most simple, basic level, right? So with that kind of, we'll talk about, so we, we've talked a little bit about where CISA sits in DHS. We've talked about its role securing both government networks, not just federal, but state and local. And then, you know, providing utilities and other critical infrastructure providers in the private industry, resources they could never afford otherwise to help them secure that infrastructure. And we've talked a little bit about the communications role and some of the and some of the operations. So I think this is kind of a good point where we go back to you have these people all over the country. And you know the reality is it's in the name, cybersecurity. You're competing with J.P. Morgan Chase, you're competing with, you know, Visa. I mean, I've been to the Visa knock, right? And, you know, the fact that they, you know, handle $11 trillion or whatever it is in transactions every year, they can certainly afford a, a pretty a pretty strong cybersecurity force. So so let's kind of talk about that a little bit, this workforce. Like the, the people, an agency is just an agency, right? It's just a, a building with some paper until there's actual people that walk in and do work, right? So 
So how about telling us a little bit about the people that work there? Like what kind of jobs do they have? What do they do every day? Sure. So it, it really, for CISA, does come down to the people. And what we've tried to instill is we want to be a different kind of federal agency. And we don't want to be like everyone else. And, and part of that is really putting a people-first culture into place. And we've had a heavy focus on both recruiting and retaining the strongest workforce that we can. You're right. Often we're competing with talent across our mission spaces with a, an industry that frankly pays a lot more than we do in the government. But I think where we're able to recruit and retain top talent is our mission and really that ability to serve the nation. I think there's you know, no higher calling as we look at federal service and, and ha- having that ability to really serve the people. And so, and we do that. We have a lot of our workforce that did that in uniform uh, for many years. We have over 40% of our workforce are veterans that have wanted to continue the calling and service to the nation and have done so, found a way to do that uh, through federal civilian service. So what we've really tried to do is lean forward with our culture and really look at how do we make CISA that people-first organization? How do we look at efforts like collaboration and innovation, service and accountability as some of our core values that we came up with for CISA? Also looking at some of our core principles on how do we really create that environment for our workforce to be able to shine, to bring their experience and their expertise to the agency. You know, I've had an opportunity to welcome every single new employee orientation to CISA since I came on board over two years ago. It's my favorite meeting of every two weeks and a chance to continue to grow the team and to welcome individuals to the organization. And one of the things I share with all of them is that I truly believe that when people join our organization, they're trusting us as leaders in this organization with a phase of their career. And whether this is their first job out of high school or out of college or it's their last job before they retire, they're trusting us with a portion of their professional development and of their career. And it's not a trust that we take lightly at CISA. And it's something that we really try to make sure that we take that trust and that we do right by them. And whether that's through creating the environment and the culture for them to be successful by being open to new innovative ways of doing business, whether it's making sure we're providing the right training and the right professional development for individuals across our organization, and really trying to be that different type of agency. I think it's really helped us from a recruiting perspective, uh, and I think it's really helped us from a, a retention perspective as well. So you, you you said something there, and I don't know if it was on purpose by accident. You mentioned college and high school. So I remember you know, during the second Obama administration, I had an internship program at Commerce that I led that we created this program using high school students from one of the uh, public charter schools in D.C. that had, you know, these young people that they knew more about IT at the age of 17 than most of my staff did, you know, at, at twice their age, right? And so can we talk a little bit about that? Because because Google, Netflix, Apple, they very proudly say in their in their stuff, no college degree required, right? If you, if you can do it, the job, you can do the job. We don't care what the pedigree is. What is the, what's the CISA take on that? How does that play out? So this is where we really want to lean forward. And, and similarly, as you said, not everybody follows the traditional career path. Not everybody goes high school to college, you know, maybe to graduate school to the workforce these days. And, and we want to be able to be that agency that allows individuals to join us, both in supervisory and non-supervisory positions, from a very diverse background. I spent 13 years as a first responder you know, before I came into uh, in, into state service and then subsequently federal service. So people come from different backgrounds, right? And, and we want to be able to tap in, into that talent. One of the things that we launched uh, over the last couple of years is the DHS Cybersecurity Service. 
This is part of what we call the Cyber Talent Management Service, which really allows us to recruit cybersecurity talent. And not based on the traditional, what we call Title V, kind of traditional federal hiring where, you know, we have grades and we have steps and we have requirements of, of you know, degrees and those types of and work experience to go into there, but really testing on technical capability. So it's actually a hiring capability, a hiring authority that we have under Title VI. It's a completely different set of hiring authorities that, that allow us to hire individuals on technical acumen. So they take tests to join. You pass the test. We're not looking at whether you have a high school diploma or a PhD. Do you have the technical competence to execute that role? And then if you do, that's who we want to hire because we don't necessarily need PhDs necessarily to do some of the work that we need to on keyboards. And so it gives us more of that flexibility to tap into talent across the nation. We've seen some amazing people in high school, 14, 15, 16 years old, that are just absolutely amazing talent. And we now have the authorities to hire these people into federal service that, frankly, we never had in the past. Well, Nitin, thanks. That that sounds pretty tremendous in terms of an opportunity for someone coming out of high school or junior college or just someone in the middle of their life making career change who's developed. There's a lot of ways you can develop cybersecurity skills, right? And so uh, neither you nor I come from a traditional cybersecurity background per se, right? So how about talking a little bit about that? So if I come into CISA and I'm just starting out, what does my career trajectory look like? Where, where does that go? What do I do every day? And what does the future hold for me? So great question. And I, I'd offer kind of, uh, you know, the, the old saying, you know, the world's your oyster. And I think the when you look at CISA, I mean, a lot of people, frankly, get intimidated about joining CISA because they sit there and they go, I'm not a threat hunter or I'm not an, a hacker or I'm not a coder. So why would CISA want me? You know, as we look at, at, at the organization, and frankly, we need everybody. We need people who are top technical talent, who are threat hunters and network defenders, who can be on keyboard, right, doing these types of things day in and day out. But in order to, to help our mission, as we look at, you know, I kind of jokingly always remind people, we're the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency because we also do physical security and we do emergency communications and we do risk analytics and we do stakeholder engagement and we do our regional operations and our field personnel. In addition to all of that, we do things like emergency management exercises. We have public communications. We have a whole slew of opportunities for individuals to help support our cybersecurity and infrastructure security mission whether you're an accountant, a human capital professional. So there truly is a role in cybersecurity and, frankly, a role in CISA for everybody from diverse backgrounds. We have a lot of opportunities and partnerships that we've created with groups like the Girl Scouts, with Girls Who Code, with organizations like Cyber.org, where we've done looking at reskilling and upskilling, where we've looked at veterans programs and how do we provide reskilling opportunities there. As you said, a lot of people can come into cybersecurity from various backgrounds, you know, one of the areas that we've seen, we've heard from industry that a lot of truck drivers, on-the-road drivers, are transitioning to cybersecurity because they're able to take lessons and classes while they're on the road. And so, you know, we don't want folks to feel intimidated. We don't want folks to feel, I'm not X or Y, but that everybody should be able to see themselves in CISA. And whether you're a cybersecurity expert or a physical security expert or in emergency communications, in addition to those, we are a government organization. We are a business. You know, we're the size of a, a Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 organization. We have all the business apparatus that goes into what we do that is equally critical to us being successful in our, in our mission. And we welcome them to join our team as well. So there truly are opportunities across your organization. 
Once you're in, what happens? Well, once you're in the organization, we have a lot of movement within CISA. We have people that are able to come in and say, I really like doing X, and they are fascinated by learning about another aspect of our organization. And we have that mobility internally of the organization, both laterally and vertically. You know, we have opportunities where individuals are going to DOD schools and to federal civilian schools uh, to learn more and to bring that back in. We have through, as I mentioned, the, the cyber talent management system through CTMS, the opportunity to help exchange people within the department and where people can go to another part of DHS and help them on a mission or a project and then come back. So realistically, once you come into the organization, there are those upward and lateral opportunities as well. And I'd offer, because CIS's mission is so diverse, you can do something different every few years and you're going to blink and you're going to be ready to retire. So it really is a great organization in that we have a strong diversity of positions, missions, and roles that all together connect to that ultimate need to protect the nation's critical infrastructure. Hey, well, that does sound great. I tell you what, I think it's time for a break and use the diversity word at least three times in that answer. So you know what we're going to talk about when we come back, right? This is Joe Paiva with Nitin Natarajan, the Deputy Director for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency in DHS. We will be back in just a few minutes. And we're back taking a deeper look at DHS Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency with Nitin Narajan, the Deputy Director. Nitin, before we left, we were talking about all the opportunities. And, you know, first we talked about the different parts of the organization. We talked about there are people literally all over the country that are providing services that happen in rural America, big cities, when there's a disaster, when there's no disaster, right? Then we kind of talked a little bit about the fact that you're looking for a lot of different types of people to help in this in this endeavor, if you will, and accomplish this mission, and you need them all over the country. And then you start mentioning they don't necessarily have to have college degrees, and you start talking about how you select people based on their capabilities, not on their pedigree, right? So I think that's a great lead-in for us to talk about two things. One is how do you actually go about getting a job at CISA? But I think first, let's talk about, you know, the elephant in the room, right? Because of a lot of historical parts of this country that are not the fault of anyone who works at DHS or CISA today, the fact is we have some some diversity challenges across the federal government, right? The federal workforce does not today look like the people it serves, right? So I think if you're sitting where you're sitting— and you're in DHS and you're the deputy director of CISA, you do have a certain responsibility to help evolve the workforce to look more like the people it serves, right? To, to be more inclusive of America, if you will. So since I've now just told my guest what I think his responsibilities <laughs> are, which probably isn't a good idea, I'll let you just respond to that. How do you view your role in that? And, and what do you think CISA is doing to address what I at least perceive to be a requirement of your job? So as I mentioned earlier, we really are trying to lean forward with a, with a people-first culture, and we really want to focus on the workforce. And we are committed to ensuring that CISA is an organization that represents the nation and that our workforce is comprised of individuals that represent the nation. And so we do a lot of outreach and recruiting, you know, both kind of the traditional federal recruiting, 
through government websites. But we also try to do a lot of targeted recruiting to different organizations. And whether we're looking at uh, targeted recruiting to veterans communities, whether we're talking about to HBCUs and other minority-serving institutions, whether we're looking at groups like Women in Cybersecurity and Girls Who Code, we try, we're trying to create these pipelines, these opportunities to make sure that our workforce at the end of the day is truly diverse and truly represents the demographics of the nation. There is talent in this country in every state across the nation, and we want to make sure that our workforce can tap into that talent. And again, as I mentioned earlier, not just people who want to live in the big cities, right? And we want them as well, but we also want to tap in uh, you know, to folks who are living in, in beautiful rural Montana, right, as well. Um, and we have the opportunity to do that by looking at our workforce and structuring our workforce in a way that deals with regional personnel, you know, the 600-plus people we have in the regions, but frankly also hiring individuals to support what we call our headquarters missions from around the country. You know, often, especially with technology today, there are a lot of roles that can be done remotely. And so we've leaned into that and really tried to recruit a workforce uh, that taps into that talent across the country. You know, CISA's workforce from a veteran's perspective is 41% veteran, which is significantly higher than the government average. And so we really want to look at those types of, of demographics and numbers and make sure that we are continuing to strive to recruit the top talent and the best talent, but the diverse talent that allows, again, our agency to represent all the viewpoints uh, of the country. I think it also brings to us different perspectives, different experiences that can help guide what we do. It can help guide our outreach, our engagement, our development of our products, frankly, when we talk about information sharing and those types of things, to ensure that we are speaking effectively to communities across the nation, right? That what we're publishing as guidance or guides to communities don't only speak to large organizations or large businesses, but also speak to small organizations, that they speak to individuals working in state government as well as local cities in urban America as well as rural America, that speak to our tribal partners and speak to our partners in our territories as well. So the only way we can effectively do that is by tapping into talent in those communities across the nation. We even have employees in Guam, in fact, uh, to make sure that we can get that territorial representation, but also more importantly, to have somebody on the ground in these communities to represent CISA's mission. I'm, I'm laughing. I don't want to digress. But there, there was a very famous manhole in Guam once upon a time when you were doing Pacific theater planning because that manhole was like uh, a lot of really important fiber underneath one manhole, right, out in the middle of the street. The, um, so with that digression, how does someone go about getting to come to work at CISA? So I'm, I'm in southwest Colorado. I'm in Tombstone, Arizona. I'm in Kentucky or, or I'm in southeast D.C., right? What does that process look like? So where do I start? Like, how do I kind of approach it? So I offer the, the first step is go to our website. So recently, CISA redid our entire website to really make it more user-friendly. So we encourage folks to go to our website, and there on our career site, you can find information about joining CISA, whether that's positions posted under our traditional federal hiring, whether it's individuals who want to join the DHS Cybersecurity Service and work at CISA, all of that information is available on the website. But in addition to that, we have links to reach out directly to our recruiting teams. So we have individuals that are working with candidates as they call in and they express interest to make sure that we can educate folks on how to join the federal government. Often, you know, from the outside looking in, you know, there's no clear guide on how one becomes a federal employee. So what we've really tried to do is lean in on sharing that type of information, being very responsive to individuals, 
and to be able to guide them on the process uh, to join federal service. Now, a lot of federal hiring is still competitive, and there, you know, we are still bound by a lot of the rules and regulations that the federal government has. We are not exempt from those, but we want to try and do them in ways that, that are easier to understand. We do a lot of recruiting fairs where individuals can talk directly to hiring managers and to ask about jobs and to have that dialogue. Uh, we just finished a massive recruiting event earlier this month where we were actually able to offer tentative job offers on the spot. So these are individuals that applied for positions online. They would get interviewed, and we would make offers on the spot, something that's not often done in the federal government. So we are looking at doing things like that that are, that are new and novel. But I would offer if folks can go to the website, and you'll get the information you need, and more importantly, the ability to contact us for additional information. And, you know, it's funny because I saw those links on your website, but I, of course, I didn't click one because I would have been wrong. But, I, but, but that, so if I had clicked one, I really could have had direct interaction with one of your recruiters. Yep, definitely. We have recruiters that respond to all of those messages. We have individuals who proactively go out and do recruitment as well. So we welcome folks to go to that site and to reach out to our team and to watch the websites like USA Jobs where we post our, all of our positions so that Folks can see what's what's coming up and uh, express their interest in joining the team. And if I click on one of those links, will I also get information? Would that person be able to tell me where you're going to have one of these recruiting events that you talked about? Yeah, we list all of our recruiting events on the website as well. And so some of our recruiting events are targeted to individuals, but we also have open recruiting fairs. Some are focused on different parts of our organization, like our work in risk assessment, risk management, and others are just more broadly for CISA. And so all that information is up on the website we also do a lot of in-person events at different conferences and, and different events. So depending on what sector you're in and, and what type of work you do, you may see us at your trade show. So look for the CISA booth, and we'll be there, and you can directly engage with our folks to learn more about the agency and about upcoming opportunities. It's a long cry from the post and pray of yesteryear, huh? <laughs> Definitely. And, and we really are trying to be different and really are trying to be more proactive in what we do. And, and it is hard to navigate sometimes, you know, the, the federal – employment workspace. And we want to be different and really be forward-leaning that we can bring in new talent into federal service. Well, that does sound good. I think at this point, we're going to take our last and final break so they can pay the bills and let me keep using their studio. But this is Joe Piva taking a deeper look at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency with Nitin Natarajan, their deputy director. And we'll be back in one minute. back with Nitin Natarajan, the Deputy Director for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, part of the Department of Homeland Security. And this has been a great conversation, Nitin, and I really appreciate you coming by to see us today, right? We, we talked a lot about where CISA sits within DHS and how you maneuver this huge mission covering really the whole country and everything critical within it and work with all these partners to get it done. We talked about how you're recruiting from around the country and some of the great job opportunities that are there. I, th I think at the end of the day, when people come to work someplace like CISA, it's got to be because they really believe in the mission. Why else would they do it, right? But I would just like to hear in your words kind of why you chose to do it, right? I mean, you're out in private industry. You're making a lot more money than you can ever make in the federal government, and, and the phone rings. 
Heck, they gave you the job in like February. You were one of the first people in the door when the new administration came in, right? So this was clearly very important to the president, clearly very important to you. Why? It really is the mission. It's the mission of this organization. And, and having had the opportunity to work with CESA for 15 plus years as, as a partner, and I worked with them when I was in state government. I worked with them when I was in the other federal agencies. I worked with them from the White House. I worked with them from the private sector. And their mission is so critical and so vital and so important to the day-to-day lives of every American. It was the place I wanted to go to. And I told myself when I was in the private sector before I came back to government, I knew I'd always come back to federal service at some point. Uh, And, you know, I said the one job that I want in the entire United States government was this one. And I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to get this job and have this opportunity to really work with an amazing workforce where I'm learning something new every single day I come to work, to work with partners throughout the nation, throughout the globe, in state, local, tribal, territorial governments, in the private sector, to be able to work across 16 critical infrastructure sectors, to be able to work across everything from the cybersecurity of of federal networks, to working with critical infrastructure owners and operators, to working with our Office of Bombing Prevention and how we work with every bomb squad in the country and to work with 911 centers across the nation and our statewide interoperability coordinators to look at their engagement locally on protecting first responders, the community that I came from and that I'm, I'm very passionate about, all the way through looking at our business functions and how we can just do good government better, right, and how we can continue to be different from every other federal agency, to look at how do we tackle risk and some very complex challenges in the risk community. How do we look at how we engage with our stakeholders and our partners across all these communities? And every single day, I have a chance to come in and help our organization and learn from our organization in so many different topic areas. If I just think about the last few weeks, I've looked at everything from looking at a dam in uh, in San Antonio, working with arenas and, and venues of large gathering, to work with energy CEOs and how we're going to protect, you know, do more to protect the energy grid to working with healthcare and public health entities, look at how we can strengthen the healthcare sector, working with IT and communications companies, working with emergency service partners and 911 centers to understand how we can continue to strengthen their efforts. And I get to go throughout this country and look at the amazing work that's being done day in and day out by individuals and looking at ways that we can continue from the federal government to support their efforts locally and that's what gets me going. It keeps me going seven days a week in this job, and I absolutely love every aspect of it. And our workforce loves it too. They are truly committed to mission. We have a workforce of amazing individuals that are passionate about their jobs and have technical strength and acumen to bring the nation's best thinking to tackle what are very large and very complex issues. It has been a pleasure, and I truly appreciate it. We are unfortunately out of time. I would love to have you back again sometime because there are a couple things we tapped on that I think we could do an entire show on any one of those topics. So thank you so much. This has been a deeper look at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency with Nitin Natarajan, the Deputy Director. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to A Deeper Look with Joe Paiva here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search A Deeper Look. Deeper Look.